Hey folks, it's Jeremy from Blamo. This past week, uh, the world lost a legend. Look, I, I never know how to say these things, but uh, he was a gentleman who helped to redefine Savile Row and British tailoring, uh, Mr. Edward Sexton. And look, let me just say for a second, I actually didn't want to repost this. I'm not trying to be opportunistic. This isn't some clout chase here. Uh, I actually, we, we pulled the ads from this episode. There's no ads on it. Um, but a handful of folks reached out to me uh, asking where to find this episode. Uh, people are like, oh, you know, didn't you do a pod with Edward Sexton? Like, can you, know, can you find it or can you send it to me? And so we were just like, look, let's just re-release it. Uh, let's grab it, put it up there. But this was originally recorded in London in November 2019. Um, but just a, a quick, you know, explanation. Like Edward Sexton uh, really did help redefine tailoring, uh, specifically British tailoring, and also change the whole world of tailoring. Alex Shadovic wrote a really, really beautiful piece on him in Rob Report. You should all read it. I'll put a link to it here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... He was a special person. So check this out. Listen to this interview. Um, have a good week. Edward Sexton, how are you doing? Edward Sexton is doing great, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, do, you, uh, do you often talk uh, in the third person? No, I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's jump back to the beginning. You know, I mean, we don't have to go too far back. No, but, very briefly then. Yeah. You know... Uh, my my family, not my immediate parents, but my family has a history of being in the clothing industry in one shape or form. Uh, my mother's side was the dressmakers. My father's side was either shoemakers or or, or the trouser makers. Mm. So that, that that that's sort of in my DNA the the tailoring aspect. And in my school days, I was always in a tailor's workshop during my summer vacations. Uh, you know, running errands to workrooms or to actual tailor shops where we who gave us the work. Mm-hmm. So I, I was always around tailoring shops. I knew about keeping the workroom tidy and uh, keeping it clean and efficient. And how old were you around this time? Oh, I'd have been in my 14, 13, 14. Yeah. Right up until I was 15, I was doing that type of thing. Did you always have an idea in your head that you wanted to have this as like a career, as like your your trade? Not at that stage. I suppose um, because I'd always been around the workroom, I had a great understanding of uh, of sewing and machines and things. Uh, and we, I wasn't allowed to wear long trousers uh, at, until I was uh, thirteen. Why is that? Because <laughs> it's an old thing. You you wasn't considered a a teenager until he was 13 and allowed to wear long trousers. Oh. And the trousers that you would, my mother would buy me from the uh, local school store was not very fashionable. And at that stage, you know, in the late 50s, uh, you know, it, it was very much the teddy boy era oh. here in London and everything was like drainpipe trousers and Elvis Presley, like long teddy boy jackets with velvet collars and so yeah. it was very much out there and it, and so the school trousers didn't really suit me. So I said about restyling those, I did myself. So you redid your pants? I redid my own pants. And uh, I suppose that's really when a bug bit me, when I liked the results of those pants. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah, it's, it sounds like it. So, I mean, did you start doing this with other clothes? Or was it just the trousers? Just the trousers initially. But then, obviously, when I did leave school eventually... Um, 
I went into, actually, I went into catering. Catering? Okay. And I was working in a restaurant there at, as, a, as, a, as a commie waiter mm-hmm. in a very grand hotel here in London at the Waldorf in uh, Aldwych. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, I'd be waiting and running backwards and forwards to the kitchens, bringing the stuff, bringing the food out to the, to my station, as they called it. Mm-hmm. And um, I would see young people coming in there nicely dressed, going to theatres in the evenings and, you know, and their lifestyle seemed quite remarkably different to the one I had known as a child. Yeah. Which was very working class. Yeah. So I, my aspiration was to be, I want some of that myself. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing about that, of course, was I learned the menus. I learned about wine. I learned about food, food I'd never seen at home. Mm-hmm. It was a really great learning curve. And then obviously, uh, for some reason, it was the hours, I think, that was very antisocial hours that didn't particularly suit me. Um, and my people of my generation are getting get all going out together in the evenings. So I, I switched back to tailoring. I found a job um, in a magazine called The Tailor and the Cutter. Yeah, that was the trade magazine. That was at a the trade time. magazine at the time. So I bought that. I got a job immediately as an apprentice tailor. And uh, the first day that I arrived at my, I got the interview, passed mm-hmm. out the part out of the way with, and we agreed that I would start there on the Monday morning at uh, at nine o'clock. But when I got there uh, to the actual workroom, uh, no one was there. <laughs> so I, I the, what time the, of day is this? This is, this is eight o'clock in the morning. Okay. So I, I went in and waited and waited, and whilst I was waiting, I saw that the the workroom itself was pretty untidy. Okay. And it, I was horrified too. So I immediately sort of just started to tidy this up, tidy that up, put this there, put that there. And when when the boss actually arrived, who I was going to be working under, he couldn't believe his eyes. So you the, you the went workshop, to work. I went to the workshop and I tidied his workshop up and he apologised because he had forgotten he'd had a dental appointment. Anyway, that's even on it. So he was very impressed. And, we got, and that was a really good uh, first basis to start working with Jerry. His name was Jerry, Jerry Steen. And uh, we had a great working relationship. Yeah. For many years. I mean, it sounds like it because you, you didn't wait for anyone to tell you what to do. You no, saw a problem and I fixed did. it. I was trying to do that spot. My attitude has been all my life. Yeah. Um. So that was that. And he encouraged me to go to art school, evening school, which I did. And I stayed with Jerry for some time. Then I went to work. Jerry actually wanted to retire. Mm-hmm. And his son had no ambitions to take over the workrooms. In fact, I think he took a job inside Harrods at the time. Mm. I would have been left dry and dry. But the company that we were making jackets for in Regent Street, a company called Harry Hall, mm. uh, they made Equestrian, riding wear. Yeah, Harry Hall. Rich, yeah, famous, yeah. famous brand. And um, I was offered a, the boss there knew that uh, was, Jerry was retiring. So they asked me, would I like to come inside and work in the cutting room, which I jumped at. Yeah, because you weren't at the cutting room beforehand, were you? No, no. Yeah. And then I was, um, I was encouraged to go to evening school again and continue learning to cut and, and make the various things. So that was the very first experience I had into the cutting room. It was, but you know, I loved the lines of the uh, the the high waisted and the flared jackets. Mm. I loved all that because it went with my teddy boy image of the narrow trousers and the <laughs> long jackets. So I've always in my work today. Even I love long 
lean architectural lines. Yes. I do. And I suppose taking that on somewhat further, when Tommy and I met, uh, you know, we met at a company called Donaldson Williams. And this is Tommy Nutter. Tommy Nutter. Yeah. He was a salesman in, in the Burlington Arcade there, Thomas Williams on board. And um, I was the I was the assistant cutter to one of the partners who wanted to retire also. And you, you're just kind of, is it good luck or are you just you're at the right place at the right time? I think, no, <laughs> I think young cutters uh, always want to develop their own looks, their own crafts. Right. Which when you work for a company, you can't do because you're very much restricted to, to producing the, the look that they made them quite. The house style. The house style. Mm-hmm. So I worked alongside them with their styles, but always at the back of my mind was my own style, what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met Tommy and we used to talk about a lot of things. And Tommy knew the only way I could ever produce the work that I wanted to do in my styles mm-hmm. was the moonlight. What do you mean by moonlight? Making clothes privately for people outside of my working hours. Oh. So private clients. So moonlighting ideal in my own time and unsociable working hours, I would would carry on doing my own thing. How did you get your first appointment through that? I got my first appointment through that was by a client who Mm -hmm. I was working for, working with, uh, he he asked me, uh, would I make him some clothing privately? And I said, no. Yeah. And then I got a phone call from a friend of his mm-hmm. to ask me the same question, and I didn't know they were associated. And that's how come I started. Uh, and this chap was actually, he used to buy and sell cars. Oh, okay. I think a car dealer would have been. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I started with making clothes for this guy called Les, Les Lilly. And uh, he introduced me to a whole string of, uh, so my private clientele grew and grew and grew. Yeah. And and how are you completing this work? So, I mean, my you're... work was outside, all outside workers. Mm-hmm. I would cut the fabric at home. Yeah. And then I would go and give the work to my people outside that they would put it together for fittings. I'd go back and forth fittings and delivering finished garments. And it was very lucrative, but it's also most importantly, my confidence was growing. Yeah. My sense of style was growing. I was gaining incredible knowledge because like everything else, you can work for people, but when it's your own money and you, inv- you and uh, you, you become much more astute. Interesting. In, astute about life and, yeah. <laughs> and commerce and stuff like that. So as uh, I was gaining all the other experience. And I wasn't even aware that I was gaining all this other experience until I actually went into business. Yeah. So you meet Tommy in... I met Tommy, and we'd go for drinks after work. And he was just, yeah, he was a salesman. Tommy was a salesman, and we were very friendly, and uh, Tommy would... And I said, Tommy knew I was moonlighting. And then one evening, we were having a beer after work. And uh, he said that he'd been offered some backing to start his own tailoring company. Yeah. And... Obviously, Tommy had seen my own work that I was producing for the company, and he liked it very much. He was very impressed. And I was making clothes for Tommy also at that stage, more of a look that he liked and I liked, and developing our, our inputs yeah. and coming up with a look that we originally we, we used for our first uh, models for Nutters of Savile Row. 
And this is a huge deal because what you guys end up creating is... Exactly. Now, we didn't know that at the time. We were <laughs> just two young guys wanting to express our own ideas, yeah. our own sense of style that was revolutionary. There was, you know, there was plenty of good modern clothing stores on King's Road because yeah. at that point in L- London was changing rapidly Yeah, in the late 60s. It was changing. You had King's Road, you had Carnaby Street opening. Everything was changing. Yeah. And there was a lot of new money around. Okay. But no quality in the real sense of the word or style. Yeah. And so our, our work, apart from having this fabulous new look, style-wise, he had the old, the old-fashioned tradition of handmade quality Savile Row tailoring. Yeah. So we had a real good, we had a good mix there, and I've never compromised on 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 workmanship. Right. You know. Right. Also, I mean, what you and Tommy were doing at the time was something that no one else on Savile Row was doing in well, terms of your your silhouette. If you looked at Savile Row in the late sixties, early seventies. You'd walk along there, you wouldn't know what was happening on the side of the road. You'd oh. see big, heavy oak doors. Yeah. You'd see curtains across windows. There was nothing to entice the public to walk down there and uh, be inspired by anything. Interesting. So we, we had the, we, you know, firstly, we were the first new tailoring company to open on the road for over 100 years. <laughs> every, every, all those other companies had been inherited or yeah. passed down through the generations. Uh, so we were a brand new company. We had a brand new expression about our clothing and the styling, but still, like I say, made in that true, wonderful tradition. Right. And we had open window displays. We had big open window displays, quite interesting. Quite, and public could see them. Yeah, they'd walk down and, and see the stuff. And, see and, they'd, and they'd see all the other places with curtains and heavy oak doors. And their clients would, these other companies, their clients would go along to see them. And they would um, come and look in our window. Yeah. And they would then go back to their own tailoring house of their choice <laughs> and say, could you please make my lapels like this? Could you please make my trousers like that? Could you do? They started to suggest to the companies they were been, you know, their fathers had probably gone to, yeah. asking for changes. And it wasn't too long. Plus, we were getting amazing press. Yes, there you was were. no real menswear press in those days. Yeah, uh, and we were getting really international press. Yes, gradually these other companies started to take the curtains down, leave their leave their front doors open, and then the old model would appear in their windows. So gradually, gradually, these companies said we give them six months before they're out of business. Right now, started to adopt our new methods of uh, showing our wares. How did that make you feel when you're well, you know, to that? begin, we weren't even aware of it. <laughs> you know, like I said, we, were, we knew we had a new business. We were inundated with work. Yeah. And we there's, there was just the two of us in those days. So gradually I brought more people in to work with me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we developed an office staff behind the scenes. So there was a lot of infrastructure to be put into place as well. So um, that's where, probably where my... Moonlighting days and money came, sense came into play. I don't Interesting. know. So it all sort of kicked in. And, you know, not only that, because of the, the new money around, the rock stars. Yes. The yuppies, as we called them in those days, down in the city, had, had spare cash. Yeah. They were, they would, they would, they were flocking in. Because, I mean, I'll, just so the listeners know, I mean, you, 
dressed Mick Jagger Mick and Jagger. Bianca Jagger's wedding. Yes. Countless musicians. This you are basically dressing at the time the equivalent of British culture. Uh and and the British export of what style was was really you and Tommy. It was, but we also in being modest, of course, was the fact that we had such wonderful people wearing our clothing that were so internationally recognized. Right. Because how many suits did Elton John buy from you at one point? Oh, God, probably dozens. (laughs) Dozens over the period. And then we did lots of other people. We did like Neil Siddhartha. Yeah. You know, for all his shows in London. So, but there was, you know, God only knows what the amount of stuff they had. Yeah. And I think something else that you guys were doing that maybe you were unaware of, but is definitely you get a lot of credit for now, is there was a welcoming sense for anyone to show up as they were yes uh whether they you know they were homosexual or any of that stuff and i mean and at that time you know especially with british culture it was somewhat taboo to be about that and you and tommy were treated everyone as equal two two things about that was traditionally Savile Row was very snobby yeah you had to have a recommendation mm so that's where they, the first thing you'd go to one of these other companies, you'd push that big heavy oak door open, you'd be greeted by some old guy run one foot in the grave saying, Was you recommended to us, sir? Oh. And, you know, that was very intimidating for someone who, you know, it was quite intimidating and off putting. So when they came to us, there was none of that. There was none of that old uh, baloney. Yeah. It was like, you're welcome. You've got the money you can pay. We're happy to make clothing for you. Yeah. And coupled with the fact that, uh, like I said, we get all these high, these celebrity clients that was wonderful fashion plates for us. They were yeah. in the press. And fashion magazines was, began, menswear started to get written about a lot more. Yeah. So we got a lot of ink for ourselves, but all for the Savile Row and for the tr- trade generally. How is you and uh, your your and Tommy's relationship growing as you guys are becoming more and more successful? No, we were very close for a number of years, mm. but uh, I think also at the time you, you had some a strong Italian influence uh, mm. coming on board, uh, and some big names coming up uh, that were doing very well in the ready to wear markets, like Armani, and... like Armani, Giorgio Armani, etc., mm-hmm. etc., and. Um, Tommy had illusions of, um, of that's really where the company should be going. Mm. And I felt it was just too early for us. We hadn't established ourselves or had a secure financial basis Interesting. to do that. Yeah. And Tommy did, that was, that was Tommy's goal was to become a huge international designer. Yeah. Well, I have other thoughts on that and this is not bad mouthing anything. Oh, of course. This not. is, this is just from my heart really there's some of the clothing we were doing for like we mentioned El- Elton earlier and you mentioned homosexuality you mentioned a lot of things sure there. it what a we never minded what sex they were uh, um, homosexuals whether it's female male we making clothes for everybody but some of the clothing mm-hmm. became too theatrical and too stage wear only Interesting. Now we are Savaro. Yeah, and there was a, we had enough going on in our work, which I proved over all these many years. Yeah, 
in our in the signature features of our clothing, like my shoulder line, my lapel shape, you know, the position of my waist, etc., the high arm, all, all the things that gave us the 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 structure and the and the uh, sar- the sartorial elegance and the and the uh, expression of the clothing. Yeah. You know, when you enter a room, people see the collar, the shoulders and the sleeves of your garment. Yeah. That's what they notice, first of all, before they go anywhere else. That's the first thing that strikes them. Yeah. And my clothing has always had that very strong sexton appeal about the clothing. So I felt we had enough of that going on in any case. So we didn't gain the reputation of just being too quirky and too extreme. So we had a fall. We didn't fall out, but we had a difference of opinion over that. Understood. And eventually, you know, like marriages, relationships, sometimes you're better to cut it short Understood. and yeah. go your own ways. And that's exactly what we did. And it was all based on pure business uh, decisions. Yeah. But we remained friends. Uh, I was with Tommy just prior to his death when he passed away. Um, yeah, we, we had a lot of respect for each other. And... Um, Tommy, like I said, went his way and I went my way. Yeah. And I suppose that the clientele appropriately got divided. Some that liked that theatrical extravaganza mm. and some that liked the more sedate sophistication of my type of clothing. Yeah. I think that, so that answers your question, I think. Yeah, but we were good friends with no bad, bad will towards each other. And um, yeah, we, we separated. Yeah. And I, and obviously I didn't want to, because we were nutters of Savaroe, right? I wanted my own identity, so I would just assume my own Edward Sexton identity. So, and that carried on since we separated. And so, what year was that when you separated? It was back in the eighties, right? And then, and then you start Edward Sexton, mm. and, and you know, and just so the, the, I'm sure many of the listeners are extremely aware, but I mean, yes, everything about the the, the Sexton look is extreme elegance but also i mean i would say it's almost like architectural clothing it and is. that you know the the strong waist suppression the you know strong shoulders you know wide lapels it's it's very empowering that is that is the house look yeah that is the house look but we have to remember the word bespoke mm. we are bespoke and we're all different in life personality wise yeah career wise lifestyle wise so I have to sit with you, whoever, and have this little chat like we're having now, this consultation. Yeah. I get a feel for your lifestyle. I get a feel for your career. You know, and, and then I can take my look and I can adapt it and modify it for you. We don't have to always have that strong, strong, et cetera, and extremes. I can modify it for you so you get a good flavor of what I love to make and what oh. suits your personality. But the word is bespoke. Yeah. You've bespoken for what you want. I've had a nice chat with you, and I've bespoken for what I think I can do for you. Yeah. And and you know, when you sit with a client, and you're at first time, you can talk about fabric, you can talk about style, you can talk about it. It's not until I take one of my model garments from the rack and put it on your body that you feel and you identify exactly what I'm telling you, and you understand what I'm saying about this, this or that. You right. feel it. It belongs to you. You want it immediately. Yeah. You don't want to take it off because psychologically it's done something for you. You know, physically you look 10 times different. Yeah. 
and you like what you see. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that you, you there's a romance to your tailoring. Sure. Yeah. There's sex in a pill. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so what's interesting to hear is that, you know, even though that you've remained a bespoke house, so much of your influence has, you know, rippled throughout I not just menswear, but also women's wear because people love your idea and your approach to clothing that, you know, I, what was it you, you were doing some things for what, like Stella McCartney at one point? Well, yeah, I, I've known Paul McCartney for many, many years. Sure. I, and I went through a phase of going down to see Linda, his first wife, mm-hmm. on a regular basis because I dressed her. I made all her clothing for her. And then as as his children grew older, Paul and Linda gave them a flavour of uh, of clothing. Mm. In fact, Paul sent all of his children into me at one stage to have something made for them, you know, mm. measured, select their fabrics, measure them, make them go through the fitting process so they could understand the process of quality and everything else. And Stella got bitten by the bug. Yeah. She loved it, you know. Um, some years later, after all this, Paul said, oh, Edward, Edward Stella's going to St. Martin's. And, you know, he's my age, Paul. So I said, Paul, that's really marvellous. I said, but it'd be really great if she was in the workshop doing an old-fashioned apprenticeship as well. Mm. So she could, she, could, she could understand workroom mentality, mm. which is very important to, to create and move and work with your staff to motivate them and to excite them about new looks and new things. I said, it'd be great for her to have that. Anyway, it came, it transpired that she did come to me for some, some years mm-hmm. while she was still a student at St. Martin's and, uh, she did very well with me. Yeah. And then as when she, um, when she left St. Martin's and had her big launch party, um, she had some very big name models, uh, Helping her along. Naomi Campbell was one of them. Exactly. Sure. You you know the story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So uh, she got very amazing press. Yeah. And her clothing was magnificent. And we made those with her for, for, in my work, for the shows, her show. And um, then eventually she got headhunted by Chloe. Off she went to Chloe. Chloe came to me. It's a different business. Mm. Ready to wear business. And uh, Chloe and all the perfumes and shoes and all the accessories and the fashion shows. It's a totally different business. But the thing was... Different than bespoke tailoring. Chloe, yeah. Chloe is what we call fleur. Soft, silky, flowy. Right. What I do is core. Stella understood curl, core clothing because of me. Right. When she went to Chloe to produce core clothing, they didn't have a clue. Yeah. So they came to me with a canvas garment tacked together, asked me what I could do with this pattern to make it more core. I said, nothing. I said, come back next week and I'll give you a garment that Chloe, that Stella is showing you and wants. When they came back a week later, I gave them a model of what Stella was trying to express to them. She didn't have the experience to get get it across. Understood. And no more did I understand floor and court at that stage myself. I knew what we did inside out. 
but I didn't understand the mix, the way we had to mix the fleur and the core to make a successful collection. Right. And catwalks in Paris, believe me, are fantasy. <laughs> They're all fantasy. Yeah. And the real fantasy is to create the press, to get the big names at the shows, to sell the perfume, the handbags. <laughs> That's the whole thing about fashion shows. and and uh, the, the bigger margin items. The bigger margin items. Yeah. Although... Stella's clothing flew out of Chloe. Yeah. It did extremely well. Yeah. And uh, she got very well received, and I got some nice press along the way. That was all very, very beneficial for everybody. Do you approach women's dress, like women's clothing, different than men? Two different businesses. Yeah. Left hand and right hand. Mm -hmm. Different systems, different physiques, obviously. Yeah. Peaks and valleys, that's what you get with ladies. Yeah. Curvaceousness. Men's, although men's, because of the way men take care of themselves today, they're becoming much more uh, curvaceous in terms of their shoulders, their latissimus dorsi, their, their you know, just everything, and their smaller waist. You know, today men's wear is changing tremendously. I mean, they just in the old days they'd call it like you probably know from your days in men's wear yourself. They'd call it like a six-inch drop. Yeah. Today, you're going to go down to an 8-inch, 10-inch drops today. It's the same as you would with a woman. Right. 34, 24, 36, you know. That's, uh, you can do that quite easily with men today. Yeah, I mean, while you were explaining the physique of a man, you, you actually referenced muscles. Yes. Yeah, which... Jim. Yeah, yeah. Could, could taking good care of themselves. I mean, but it's, to me, it also goes to show like that you really do approach how you dress people from uh, an architectural and a Absolutely. sculptural point well, because you need to know that. Yeah. You need to know where people carry the size. Mm. People go in and they buy, they'll go in and they say there are 38 chest. <laughs> well, right. you don't, you don't fit a man's chest in a jacket. You fit his shoulders because anything below the shoulders can be changed in a made, in a ready-made garment. Right. If you fit his chest, it could be all tight in the shoulders because the coat's not fitting him in the shoulders and the neck. Right. But if you fit your shoulders and neck, everything else can be sculpted and trimmed down. You can't put fabric on a, on a ready-made garment into the shoulders. There's a secret to buying clothing. There's a secret to selling a ready-to-wear clothing. Right. If you measure a man's chest, mm -hmm. measure him 40, and then you measure around his shoulders, he should be 47. There should be a seven-inch drop between his chest and his shoulders. That's Mr. Normal, 42, 49. Yeah. So on and so forth. But if you measure like a 50 or 50, 50 shoulders, you've got to put a 43 jacket on him, even though he may only have a tiny waist. Right. Or some. There's your, there's your starting points, you see. Yeah. That's fascinating. And like you buy a pair of trousers, a pair of pants. Yeah. You, you can tell, before you even try the jacket, you can tell if those pants are going to hit your body in the right spots, whereas you've only got one leg in them. Right. As you pull them up, you can tell the rise is the good light for you. Not, what's, not what the eye streets, the trends are selling, yeah. what's right for you. How do you feel in that? How do you look in that? Not wearing it because this, this brand says this is the rise on these trousers this season. Right. Some, yeah, I mean, something that you've done and, and stayed true to over the, you know, the many, many, many years you've been tailoring is obviously you've seen you know, I'm going to air quote fashion here and how trends have evolved and come and go. And yet you have always 
stayed true to your core beliefs? I have to, not always, I'll be fair. Okay. To say I'm not influenced by, by trends would be wrong. That would be a fibber. Uh, I love working with young people. Mm-hmm. I love listening to what they've got to say about street fashion and that. Mm-hmm. I love the word like, um, I love the word eccentricity. Mm, eccentric, yes. Eccentricity. Yes. It's like a young man would inherit his grandfather's trunk from the loft and he's going out on his first date and he goes through his trunk of clothing and he finds all these waistcoats and jet things he's never and he starts to put himself together in a look a street look yeah that's incredible that's an incredible look a guy called john dempsey he's the um esther lord a president i believe today yes he understood all that he understood that perfectly he did he could do yeah yeah, so yeah, there's there's millions, and the young people they they have they've they've got a style. I don't mind. I don't mind today seeing a pair of loafers with no socks and a nice pair of pants. Yeah, I think that's cool. Oh, good. I love a lot of things. I like. I don't mind a pair of trainers with a nice suit. I don't mind wearing this roll neck sweater with a grey flannel jacket. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. I don't have to wear a shirt and a tie to feel feel dressed. Right. I just have to look right and feel right. Yeah. That's really beautiful. I mean that because I want to say that a lot of other tailors, especially ones that I would say are so, so well versed and and so established, maybe are not as welcoming to that. And the fact that you purposely welcome that and it and in, it sounds like it fuels you in other ways. Sure, it does. It excites me. I'm excited to come to work in the morning. I'm 77. <laughs> I still love coming to work and learning and t- doing something before I left today. Yeah. Very, don't do much of it these days, but I'm doing it. It's a special feature in the back of a garment. Yeah. You know, pleated, uh, something I used to do years and years ago, but doing it in a different way today. You know, you've got to think and challenge yourself. Yeah. And it's creative and it's keeps everybody in the world from excited too. They don't want to be keep making the same thing, same single-breasted, double-breasted jackets. They like to see a bit of a variety there. Something right. new being created. Yeah. You know, it's a creative business we're in. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, so I mean, because you mentioned it here, you're 77. How long do you plan to keep going? As long as God wants me to. Oh. <laughs> and in something that you know, I have noticed from you know a lot of other people. I mean, you are you are a mentor to many, 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 not just designers, but you know, like tailoring. I mean, I've tailored, I've trained many, many youngsters in my day. Yeah. And they all, they still come to see me <laughs> and I get texts and emails from all over the world with people that work with me or under me. You know, it's, it's, it's nice. Uh, here's an honest question here. Like, how does that, cause I've, I've met you a couple of times before just offhand. You're an extremely humble, you know, quiet, reserved man. And I really love that about you. How do you, honestly, how do you stay humble with the legacy that you've created? I'm not even aware of the legacy, to be perfectly honest with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, people. I'm not really. I know I've I've got, I've been referred to by the Rakers, the legend, uh, which is probably true because I'm probably one of the oldest guys around today. (laughs) So I'm bound to be a legend, (laughs) good or bad. But uh, yeah. I've never worked in my life, you know, because I've, I've just been doing what I love all my life. And it's, it's, a, um, it's a hobby, if you like. Let's call it a, yeah. 
vague way. It's been a hobby. I've never liked the business side of, of, of the business. Oof, yeah, I hear you on that one. I don't like that side of it. Trying really. to get paid. No, I get prices. paid. I just, I'm very good at that. <laughs> I will not buy a bit of cloth unless I've got 50% deposit. Good for you. Uh, well, no one will take a suit until it's paid for beforehand. Good. So there for my moonlighting days, by the way. <laughs> All that that's one of the reasons Tommy and I did not always agree on either. Interesting. Because, uh, you know, I, I was very matter of fact about being paid for what you do. So, yeah, but uh, I'm I'm very flattered by all the comments that are said about me anyway. Yeah. It's flattering, but it uh, doesn't have to. Ego, I don't like the word ego. Ego stands for he's got out. Oh. I don't like that. Yeah. You know, I like to have God in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You know, one of the other uh, designers that you collaborated with is a designer that I would say is almost the polar opposite of you, but in many ways the same in terms of the architectural approach. That's Rick Owens. I know Rick. H- how did that happen? Well, Rick came, Rick was trying to do a collection and he came to me and uh, I, we collaborated on some models, that he, sketches that he gave me and I made the models for him and he showed them. They're different to what I would design-wise, but uh, creative mm-hmm. in their own way. Uh, I don't know how well they sell in the marketplace, but in terms of being creative, yeah, there were some different lines and uh, appearances there. And like he'd be the first to tell you that I took some of those and I added a few of my own contemporary looks to the, his work. Mm-hmm. And we created this shoulder or that type of sleeve. And it worked and balanced that very well. Yeah. It wasn't a long-lasting collaboration, but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it worked okay. Do you still are you still open to collaborations with other people and that sort of advice, or is that do you think those days may be behind you? No, I know. We're we're there. We're in business. You got something you want to say or request, and we can agree a price. I will do it. Right, because I've got a young team. I've got a wonderful young team. How, and, how many people are on? And your it's team? the way they grow. There's right. eight of us. There's eight of you. And do you do you keep um, like how often do you bring new people in? Well, as as one matures and it goes off into the big wide world, just mm-hmm. you know, we'll have vacancies for a new place. Yeah, for so a new member. Um, with us, our training program is, I will start with one, mm-hmm. and then that one will teach the next one, and that one will teach the next one, and I just go out periodically. Checking, 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 double checking. Yeah. So it's like a constant flow, a little river flowing there. Yeah. Constantly. So, I mean, but you're still cutting, no? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. gosh, yes. That's, that's awesome. I don't know. I'm, I'm somewhat dumbfounded just by this entire, this entire discussion with you because, I mean, in a lot of ways, you've never changed at all. I mean, you're still just making, still making suits. You're, you're not. You know, I, I may not have changed. I think the nature of our business has changed. And you tapped on that earlier when you were telling me what you've been up to. I think social media has given us more of a, a platform, if you like. Mm-hmm. In my days, the only way you could really expand your business or get new business was you paid for a huge adver- advertising pages, which you never knew what you got for it in any case. Or you got personal recommendations. Right. And and your clients show... Sh- you know, they wardrobed your work for you. They showcased your work, what they right. were wearing. So that was always our best form of advertising. But now with social media, you know, Instagram, 
we can take photos of our, of our work and put that out there. Yeah. We can have an e-commerce site now yeah. where we're selling our shirts, the Edward Sexton dress sense, if you like. Yeah. The shirts, the ties, with the pins, the tabs, it's all I love. The high-waisted trousers. The high-waisted trousers. Yeah. All that, that is all the stuff that I like to wear and feel comfortable in. And, and it's a great look. You know, so all that, that has helped to broaden out. Now, and we had clients buying online from us from China, Singapore. Or, or, so we just sent a little email out one day saying, oh, we're going to be coming to Hong Kong. We're going to be staying here. We're going to have a beach show, uh, having a, a trunk show. Mm-hmm. And clients just came in that were buying our shirts or ties or sweaters. They just came along to see the tailoring and they became clients. Interesting. So that is a way that we've it's helped us to broaden our horizons in terms of client a client base. How often do you do trunk shows out of out of we London? Do, I think we do three uh, be in we do three to the States, three to the, the the China, Hong Kong, and we've done Europe as well, but not yeah. so much these days. But yeah, there's only a limit to how many suits we can physically make by hand. Right. I mean, what if you wouldn't mind, what is that limit a year? Well, it's, it's limited. We can only make probably eight garments a week, clients, right. finish suits. So that's why we're very expensive. But then we do have the facility of having the, what we call the offshore bespoke, right. which is made in China. It's, a lot of companies will call this made to measure. Right which we don't, we call it offshore bespoke because we cut the patterns here in London. We send the fabric and the patterns out to China and the, the suit comes in finished. As the final fitting here in London, any finished things are dealt with here in London and then it's shipped back. So, so we have that side of the business also. So we can do considerably more of that. Right. That's awesome. Well, Edward, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your candor. I mean, this has been really, really special to me. No, I'm very flattered that you asked me, and I hope it can help everybody. Oh, it definitely will. Thank you. Thank you so much. God bless you. Cheers. Cheers.